Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All right, good morning again. It is that time to get started. We are headed back to Matthew chapter 18. We pick up always where we left off. Some very uh, intriguing words from the mouth, lips of our Lord and Savior Jesus uh, this morning. So let's prepare our hearts with a word of prayer. Now, Father God, we look to you, these very infamous words that are so strict and harsh, so stern. We know now on this side of the cross that those words are born out of love and compassion so that all might come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. For your kind heart, your compassionate love wills that none perish, but that your house in heaven would be full. So, Father God, help us to apply these strong words that come at us in a very timely, in a very timely way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. I don't know about you, but I like nature shows. Uh, I like to learn about cool animals, and I love the beautiful photography and the narrator's voice on those there, it's always so calm and smooth and soothing. You know, it's perfect for the background if you want to take a nap on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. And so I saw a National Geographic uh, recently on Arctic wolf pups, and they said something that caught my attention. I got a picture of what I'm talking about. The father wolf is one of the most ferociously protective animal dads in the kingdom of critters. His job is to protect the den and the pups, and when he senses a threat, he crouches down, he uh, shows those impressive incisors, and he lets out a growl that lets all of the predators know you don't want to mess with my pups. And so the father wolf may win first prize for most protective father in the animal kingdom, but in the kingdom of people, of men and women, the one who wins first place for most protective father is, you guessed it, God the Father. Pity the fool who will mess with the father's little ones, as he calls them, 
you will see what I'm talking about, no uncertain terms, in the graphic uh, illustration of that very protective love in this morning's passage. And so here in Matthew 18, it's a new theme that kind of got prompted by the <laughs> disciples' bad behavior of not treating one another with love. And, and so he's talking now about heaven's values and how important it is to maintain uh, good and loving and healthy relationships in the kingdom of uh, heaven. And so, yeah, how we treat others really is the theme. And in light of how protective uh, God is of his little ones and how valuable and loved they are in God's sight, it has to really dictate how we treat fellow believers based on how important they are to God and how protective he is when any of his little ones get hurt or wounded or tripped up. He takes it very personally, and there are dire consequences of anyone, anyone who dares inflict a wound or an offense, unnecessarily so, to one of God's children. And so what's important to God better be important to those who want to please him. What's, what God finds passionate, what God's passionate about, uh, better be a passion of those who want to serve him and do his work. Amen. And so here we go. We're going to take a look now at some very strong language that illustrates exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, we're going to start with the first four verses that we looked at last week, just for context. And when it comes to dive into the text, we'll, we'll pick up where we left off. So just to remind you at that time, the disciples come to Jesus. The other writers tell us they're arguing about which one of them were the, was the greatest. And so they ask then, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to himself and placed him among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change, be converted, make a turn, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly, humble position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He goes on. And whoever welcomes a little one like this child in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones of mine who believes in me, now we're talking about adult Christians who God will consider little ones, his little ones. It would be better for him, the offender, the predator, to have a large billstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things got to happen. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and thro be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. 
See that you do not, <laughs> yeah, yeah, now he's got their attention. He says, so you better make sure that you don't look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father. And we're going to wrap up with this. So what do you guys think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one? The one is important to God. And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. It's a big deal, the one, the one. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, not even one, everyone is important to God, as important as the whole world, one soul. And so with that, we're going to get settled in now, talk about all of this. And I think it's very timely because if ever we needed to be concerned about offending one another, in a time like this where Christians have all kinds of deeply held opinions of what's going on and so quick to be divisive and to be rude and short and to cause offense, to a little one, wow, we better start paying better attention to the words that come out of our mouths, how we feel about people, even the ones that we don't agree with that we would consider the least of these. If they belong to God, they're very important, and we have to reassess our words and our behavior toward anyone who claims to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, I told you that these words, this sermon that we're seeing uh, now has been born out of their bad behavior. With their, They're running rough, roughshod over each one of them. You know, shut up, Peter. Shut up. Man, I'm the greatest. You're not. You're always talking about yourself. But you know who's great? It's, it's me, right? And so they're treating each other like, like dirt. And this is what prompts the whole chapter about how important it is to treat other believers with dignity and respect based on how much God loves them and how valuable they are in heaven's sight and how protective he can be about somebody who's just going to treat them uh, unkindly. It's a big deal to God. And so now we have to reassess based on that, those things, not on base whether or not we agree with them or we value them or we like them. or It's about how he feels about them. And he has really strong feelings, right? So he gets their attention with some really strong words, kind of like smelling salts, you know, because they're, they're the disciples and they're saying things like, you're a loser, Peter, okay? Andrew, shut up. You know, they're doing that. And Jesus says, okay. He breaks open the smelling salts and goes, you want to know how important this is and the, and the seriousness of what you're doing? Guys, get a load of these words. And so before us will be Three ideas, a sober warning, a radical approach, chop, chop, and a new attitude, this new value of the importance and the worth and the dignity of one single insignificant Christian. Let's dive in, if we dare, to the sober warning. There it is. Let me paraphrase for you. 
Whoever's welcoming, friendly, willing to serve, uh, hospitable toward a little one, now connecting with adult Christians in the sense of being a little child of God, because they belong to me, you're welcoming me. Verse 6, if anyone stumbles, one of these uh, who believes in me, it would be better for them to be drowned. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, verse 7, what sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable. They're bound to happen. But how awful for the person who does the tempting. And so we're, here we go. Let's talk about these words. Really, he's saying people are bound to fall into sin, but woe to the one who pushes them. Bound to happen, but Man, if you're responsible for tripping up one of mine, then you've got to deal with the Arctic wolf, and it's not good, even if you're going to heaven and have been saved. There are dire consequences for both, and so we're going to talk about that. And we covered the good news already, <laughs> verse 5, where he says, um, and, and, and uh, the sermon is posted already, so as Dr. Carson said, uh, not uh, we welcome the least significant Christian into our lives uh, because, uh, not because of their wisdom or their might or because of their uh, great attractiveness. We, we, we are uh, welcoming to, to them because they belong to Jesus. It's in his name we deal kindly with the unlovely with the unattractive, when or personality-wise, the insignificant or the socially awkward, or you know, as we say sometimes, the EGR extra grace required <laughs> of that person. And so Christ says, "Good news when you go the extra mile and you treat people with kindness in my name. You're letting me work in their hearts and lives, and it blesses me." And you will not lose your reward for that. Now conversely, we pick up in verse 6, for those who do the opposite of welcoming, but they shun. But worse than shunning, they go out of their way to trip that person up. He says that is really not good. So we move from privilege and promise now to a warning. And it's pretty sobering. And so, so by the way, for the Christian who's victimized, these passages bring comfort and release because, you know, God is keeping score. And he says, vengeance is mine. That's my department. Uh, I'm the one who will right the wrong done to you. I'll take care of it. That's my job. Your job is to keep your heart sweet and kind, loving your enemies if they're hungry, you feed them, you respond in the opposite spirit. And just know this, I'm on it, I see it, and I will deal with every wrong that's ever been done to you. That's what the, these verses tell you. So we can rest in his love that way. And so now this severe warning is addressed to, this, to the disciples and they need to hear it even though they're saved and they, they're really, oh, 11 of them, don't have any worries about where they're going to spend eternity. So the fullest application of these words is to who needs it the most, the unbelieving world. 
because unbelievers are the ones, really, that do these kinds of behaviors that trip up and try to destroy and try to be uh, hostile toward uh, a believer who belongs to God. And so unbelievers need the warning the most, and so you will see that this warning goes out in gospel preaching in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, in his justice, God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, you see. So God's trying to say, Christians, heads up, um, I got your back. I'll take care of it. Leave it to me. I'm way more creative than you could ever be. I, I know how to do it, you know, in a way uh, that uh, is, will be satisfied factory in your site as well. And so, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. In other words, uh, listen up unbelievers, you're going to perish for doing things like that, treating God's people with disdain. Um, But what's good for the goose is good for the gander, meaning wrecking a Christian life or harming a Christian is serious business in God's sight, no matter who's wielding the club. Saved, redeemed hands, or no? There's going to be really uh, costly and painful uh, consequences, even if you don't wind up perishing. You see, I mean, really, ask those in Corinth who took advantage of the Lord. They were taking the Lord's Supper, and they were getting drunk and, and carousing with the women. So there were men getting drunk, and uh, taking advantage of Christian women at the home fellowship groups at communion. Paul said, have you guys noticed that some of you are getting sick and dying? You're dying because you're sinning against the Lord like that. So God brings judgment to saved people who will die prematurely, but they will be in heaven. But that's one of the ways he chastises people for severely uh, transgressing his commands. You can't just say, I'm saved and do whatever I want. First of all, people who do whatever they want uh, truly aren't carried. That's not characteristic of being saved. But even if you are saved like that, there'll be consequences, <laughs> you know, even in heaven. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 says, to those who squandered their Christian life, who, who offended God's people, who were reckless, they get to heaven as though escaping through the flames. Ooh, that was close. Nothing to show for it in eternal reward because they weren't good stewards of the Christian life, but they get saved. First Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15. Read it for yourself. And so there are consequences because people like to say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm going to heaven and I know that for sure. Well, first of all, uh, if you're <laughs> living let's say, in sexual immorality. You don't know for sure that you're going because the Bible says those who live in sexual immorality are not going. You can argue about it (laughs) to the Lord and say, now wait a second here. I said the prayer. And he'll say, you know what? They were just words. Look at how you lived your life and that proved you didn't know me. Yeah, so these are strong Words. Now, what's the crime all about? The crime he's talking about that cause a Christian 
to sin, really the word is to create a scandal, to trap them, to ensnare them. This idea uh, to lead them astray is included in that. There's a lot of things I have written down here. Number one is when someone shuns them and treats them like dirt, you know, because you've sized them up and it's like it's only a guy at the mission. I can say and do whatever. Yeah, whatever, guy. Yeah, what'd you say? Okay, whatever. Somebody's more important than you standing over here and yeah, bye. And then they are stumbled because you don't want to come back to church because they got the message you sent them loud and clear. You're not important, sir. By the way you dress, the way you look, what I can get out of this relationship, you're just not important. Where were you? You slept under a bridge when? Two weeks ago? You're not significant. They got the message. It stumbled them. That's the word to trip. And they don't want to come back. And now they're struggling with their relationship with God because of you. You didn't receive them. Ah, there's, there's one application, but it goes on. Or worse, you actually sin against them. Yeah, I mean, Christians do terrible things to other Christians. They'll slander them or they'll steal from them. You've heard of stuff like that. And that causes an obstacle to be placed in front of that Christian um, toward their relationship with Christ. Or you lead them astray. To cause them to sin can mean to lead them astray theologically. So here's how it used to go. When you stopped believing in God and you were sinning and doing your thing and you fell away, you would feel shame and you'd disappear. No one ever hear of you again. But no, not now. Now you're the hero. You're the liberator. So you have deconstructed the faith and now you're going to give a TED talk. And you're going to give a TED talk to thunderous applause and you're going to say, I wasn't this uptight, narrow-minded, hateful person as a Christian with so narrow of a life. And then I started realizing and I became wiser than the Apostle Paul. And I became more forgiving than Jesus. And when that's the case, Houston we got a problem. And so now, no, now you're the hero. You're, you're the one who just says, uh, you know, we just have come out of such a, a restrictive and repressive way of thinking about God. And now the Bible's just a story and thousands of young people have listened to some of these celebrity <laughs> Christian worship leader types who've come out and given their TED Talk to thunderous applause, as I've been saying, and they stumbled them, the followers. Not going to be pretty for them. So that's the idea there. Or you seduce a believer into sinning to cause them to sin. So you, you, you stick your, your foot out and somehow because of you, they get trapped into sexual immorality or all kinds of different vices that destroy them, thanks to you. You helped push them there. Jesus says, you're going to own that. I'm going to put that on your account. That every single repercussion of their sin, that you helped them, you prompted it, you allowed it, you fostered and nurtured it. He says, you're not getting away with that. That's 
I'm going to charge that to your account. Now, what about the punishment in the bigger picture if the person doesn't know the Lord for sure? This is what's going to happen. And it's harsh for a reason. Now, in uh, you know, who does these things? As I said, it's not characteristic of a Christian life. So someone who loves the Lord really doesn't have to worry about ending up in the fires of hell. Who, who does these things? Who's the one who opposes God and is an enemy and would love to demolish the faith of a, of a believer? Well, it's an unbeliever. Who else is cynical, immoral, uh, aggressive, hostile, self-absorbed, who preys on Christians? Well, no wonder he describes a place called hell because they go to hell because not you never go to hell because of committing a sin. Never. You go to hell because your sin kept you from connecting with the one who can save you from your sin, you see? That's what's going on. So Jesus says about this in 6 and 7 as you're following me, death by drowning would be preferable than what awaits that kind of reckless person who's behaved that way toward God's cubs. He said, uh, as, a, as, a, as a nightmare, <laughs> nightmarishly horrifying and awful as drowning would be, he goes, oh, take drowning. If you had to choose, drowning's way better. He says, Jesus says, you know why? Because drowning's temporary. It's a moment. Boom, it's done. It's scary. Three seconds. You take the breath. Boom done. Not so to fall into the hands of the living God, unsaved and unatoned for. That agony doesn't stop in five seconds, but it's relentless and it goes on and on and on. And so he says, fellas, this behavior um, and this destiny awaits those who are acting like you guys. So you might want to have a change of heart, humble yourselves, and stop slicing and dicing with your tongue to one another. Because what is characteristic of the condemned shouldn't be named among the saved. Even if you are saved, you see. So now, because of the random... Uh, the random believer's worth to God and because of God's vengeance upon anyone who hurts one of his believers. Therefore, there has to have a zero tolerance attitude, chop, chop, right? So here we go with 8 through 10, I believe it is, right? So you get it in light of how serious, now listen, in light of the serious consequences and how much God loves them and, and how important they are to heaven, then whatever it is that's causing you fellas here, let's take the the, the more narrow application, because he's talking to them about their sin that's wrecking Andrew's life. He says, whatever that is that, that makes you want to step on the head of your fellow disciples, guys, you need to chop, chop, get it out of your life, even if it's as important to you as an eyeball or a foot, Better to enter uh, life impaired than to be perfectly whole 
and miss it right completely. And so uh, I love these words here because, uh, you know, unbelievers like to say to me when I share the gospel, you know what, the gospel is just a little too narrow for me. I just like to stay with Jesus' words. You know, just the red letters in the Bible, just save those for me. You know, love God, love one another, treat people the way you want to be treated. That's for me. I like Jesus' words. And then I can say, well, what do you make of Matthew 18 and, and the hellfire that he talks about? You know, and so there's really no answer to that because they're, they don't know what Jesus teaches. That's the truth. And so these words, I want you to see this. It's born of a heart of love. I love Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, that says, God takes an oath. He says, as surely as I live, I swear. He says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their sins and live. You see, that's God's heart. So he's saying these terrible words to say, whatever it is, my dear friend, you, hell is so horrible that whatever that thing is that gives you that temporary thrill, that perceived gain, and I say perceived because you never gain by disobeying God, but it perce- you're perceived as it is. He says, whatever it is, it's like, I can't get rid of it. It's my eye. He goes, no, gouge it out. Because nothing is worth holding on to that will jeopardize your eternal soul. That's what it is. That's what it is. And it's so, so for them, it would be like my ego. It would be like, are you meaning I would have to say like, I would have to withdraw out of the competition that the, the, the 12 guys are having of who's the best disciple, right? I'd have to say to them, hey guys, listen up. I'm going to admit defeat. You guys are better than me. I'm just lowly. I'm such a sinner. I'm broken. I can't get it together. I'm the, low, I'm the worst disciple. I'd have to say, from now on, guys, <laughs> leave your duffel bags all there. I'll carry them for you. And when the next time we need to wash the feet, I'm going to wash each one of your feet because I'm the lowest. I'm, I should be like the slave. I don't even know how God chose me. I'm such a loser, but here I am. He loves me, and, and, and you guys are way better than me. That would be like gouging out someone's eyeball because no man can imagine themselves saying that to another guy in the throes of the competitive, envious uh, challenges that we do. So he says, I don't care if it's your ego or your desire to want to be better than others so you can feel better about yourself because you were so wounded all your life that it feels like an eye to you it feels like a hand. I can't admit defeat. I can't. I gotta stop. I gotta keep on pressing on to be the best so that I can live with myself and look in the mirror and feel okay. Yes, you're not a loser. You're better than some of them. Right? And he says, I don't care, guys. Get rid of it. And, the, you know, of course, and I know you know this, he's not talking about amputating a body part as if that would help. 
Yeah, it wouldn't help. You cut off your hand, you know, you can steal with this one. That's not a problem. You cut off your, both of your hands, you can steal with your feet. You'll find a way. You can steal with, you know, I'll use my mouth and I'll take it. What doesn't belong to me? It's not about that. It's about losing, being willing to go without, to sacrifice something that you find very necessary for the sake of pleasing God and not sabotaging your own Christian life. Now, I think you get it. (laughs) Uh, But the P.S. here of verse 10, love it. He says, listen, in consideration, I want you to look at that person. I want you to to look at Philip or Bartholomew or pick a disciple, guys, in the context, right? And I want you to see the the angelic host, the angel that's guarding Andrew to understand what an elevated, dignified status the least Christian has from heaven's point of view because God sent and assigned a mighty, powerful, regal angel to guard them. That's how important they are. Okay, So, for example, when you see Secret Service you know, around somebody, I got a picture, you know somebody, somebody important's in the limo. Somebody's going to get somebody of value. Somebody you want to stop and say, oh, who's getting in there? You know? God's saying, if you could only see, <clears throat> picture the least significant Christian that you know. And imagine when angels manifest themselves and God allows us to see them, we fall down as dead men. Guards, military guards at the tomb saw two angels, and they were on their faces in the dirt. There were special forces there. On their faces, it said, quaking as dead men. That's who's guarding the guy from the mission, the gal from the rose, the guy in humble circumstances who loves the Lord. So he says, in light of how important they are to heaven, because you're not just going to say anything to that that guy who's getting out of the car. You're like, hey, loser, what's up with you? You're dumb. You know, you wouldn't do that because why? There's somebody, you can tell how important they are by who's around them. The emissaries around them from heaven should tell you, guard your mouth Guard your mouth. Oh, don't. Do you know who they are? See, that takes faith. God said, if you only knew who they're going to be, they're going to be seated on a throne. They're not going to look like a plain Jane. They're going to have a do-over. They're going to have a makeover. (laughs) They're going to look uh, much Different And so let me show you. Angels do my proof text. I don't want to leave without it. Hebrews chapter 1. Angels are God's servants. They're spirits. They're sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. And that least significant Christian is going to inherit salvation and has angels. And Jesus says they, they have access to the Most High God. They're sent by Him, by His presence. So yeah, that's 
really important. So we move from sober warning to a radical chop-chop approach to anything gets in the way to finally a new way of thinking. Let's look at the last paragraph, verses 12 through 14. Come on, you guys. You tell me. Let's say a farmer owns a hundred sheep, but if just one of them, one insignificant little lamb, it's like one you, whatever, one. He's got 99 other ones. What's important about one little lamb that wanders off? Who cares? That's the problem. Who cares about the one? He says, oh, God cares about one sparrow. He cares about one sheep. How much more? One soul. So he goes on. It's a big deal, right? He leaves the 99. He makes a big effort, searching high and low for just one individual that wandered off. Verse 13 When he finds it, he's got more joy over that one he rescued than the 99 that were safe in the barn. That's the way your Father in heaven thinks. Each solitary, insignificant nobody who puts their trust in Jesus means the whole world to him. One. That's the deal. Not just, it's not just John. It's John with an angelic host around him, a co-heir of Christ. That's what he's trying to say, a necessary illustration. So he's saying, listen, one goes missing, the shepherd's whole routine is altered, he concentrates all his energy, and he's prepared to leave the 99 at some risk. They're in an open field, because what matters is like, oh my word, one, one, just one, one nobody is missing. But it's the whole world to him. That's what he's trying to say. You know, you've often heard, if you were the only person on earth, would Jesus come and die for you? Proof text, he would. Because one matters to him. You know the starfish story, the, all the starfish on the ocean, uh, on the shore, washed up and they're all dying because they can't get back in the water. And this little boy figured it out. He's running along there, and he's tossing one at a time back into the water, coming up, finding one, running back, tossing it, and this older gentleman sees him, and they start talking and laughing, and he says, you're doing a good job, but you know what? It's a waste of time, man. He says, look, there's hundreds of them. It doesn't matter. I mean, it just felt like, you know, what difference does it make? And the kid holds up, and he says, it makes a difference to this one makes a difference and you're you're dealing with Mr. or Mrs. Insignificant of the Year Christian. They're important to God. Enough for you to reassess the situation. And I do want to say this. When he says uh, the shepherd has more joy about the one rescued than the ones he left safe there, um, The point is not that the shepherd doesn't rejoice in the safety of the flock, and it's not that God is less delighted with those who didn't need rescue. Here's the point. With a God like this, we can never be the cause of offending just one of the flock. Not even one. You don't even get that luxury. Not even one. Not even the least one. Because they're as elevated 
as who you think is, wow, somebody I need to really treat carefully because they're important. He says, no, no, reverse it. Or just use the latter or the former. Just treat everybody (laughs) with the same kind of importance. There's no such thing as an unimportant, insignificant believer because even one has infinite worth to God. So now, in light of all of this, you've got Christians all around you. Not all of them are easy to deal with. Check yourself. You don't want to unnecessarily hurt, stumble, or wound them. You don't want to summon the wrath of Papa Arctic Wolf. You really don't. You want that wolf happy. (laughs) You want it licking your face and being ears down, right? You don't want to instigate God. You want to prompt God to bless. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we look to you this morning in these challenging words, God, to respect, to have faith, treat each person who calls on your name with great love and care. Help us to do that because you're worthy, God. You ask us to do some hard things, Jesus, but you're worthy. You're just plain worthy. Lord, nobody else could tell us to gouge out our eye or chop off something that seems so important or dear to us. Nobody can do that. And we wouldn't do it for anybody else. But you're worthy, God. You're worthy of us with spiritually amputating the things that get in the way and destroy us. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.